Well, I don't know if you're a fan of it or not. Apparently, many are. I'm talking about that show, Inside the Actor's Studio, which apparently has been on the air for 18 seasons. As you probably know, James Lipton, rather awkwardly at times, interviews actors on the ins and outs of their craft. Well, that's what came to mind this week as I was thinking about what this morning's sermon is. It's sort of like an inside look at what goes on in the planning and executing of our worship services. You could say it's sort of like inside Ryan and Drew's offices, inside the email exchanges between Ryan and Drew throughout the week, and of course others as well. Now, don't worry, there's no video tour of our offices coming up on the screens this morning. Neither neither will this be an answer to that question that a lot of pastors get. They get quite frequently. So what do you do all week anyway? This isn't about how Drew leads his team in practices earlier in the week or how Ryan prepares a sermon throughout the week. What I mean is that I want to show you what biblical principles direct and shape and frame up what we do on a Sunday morning. What drives what we do? Like the wooden forms that are put in place, staked into the ground before concrete goes in. Those wooden forms hold the concrete in its place until it hardens, right? So there are certain forms, according to God's word, biblical principles that give necessary shape to to the loose concrete that goes into planning a worship service. And if we didn't have those forms, just like if you didn't have the wood slats before the concrete dries, well, it would run all over the place. It'd be messy. It wouldn't be pretty, even if it would be artistic. It wouldn't be a solid place to stand on. We need those wood forms from God's word that direct, that frame up, that guide and shape how we plan what we plan to do on a Sunday morning. Over the last few weeks, we've been doing a short series about praise in the book of Psalms. We'll do one more next week, Lord willing. We've been saying the Psalms as a whole are about praises. But no single Psalm tells us everything we need to know about praise. It doesn't show us No single psalm shows us everything the psalms say about praise. So in the last few weeks, we've allowed ourselves to draw out certain principles about worship from all over the psalms. If you're fairly new here, I should warn you, this is different than what we usually do. Usually we're in one passage per week, primarily, and we look at that passage, and it may drive us to another part of God's word, but then we go back to that original passage. We look at it there. We, we work our way through it. We look at structure. We look at context. We try to understand a section of God's word, usually working through a book. And we do that for a number of reasons. Uh, one, that's how God's word is given to us. It's given in books and chapters, even though those chapter headings weren't there originally. It's given to us as a whole, and so you can work your way through a book, and you can see flow and context and the argument develop and and, and those sorts of things. It's also good to take a a passage a week and focus on that, or to work your way through a book of the Bible, because 
that guards what you want to talk about, right? It gives you what you should talk about. So in a series like this, I, I have endless frustrations throughout the week thinking, oh, the options are infinite. You know, I could give nine points, 15 points. I don't know. I could, you know, I could say this. I could say that. It's like random thoughts uh, by Ryan about worship in here's some Bible verses for it. A steady diet of that kind of preaching isn't good because you get a lot more human thoughts than God's thoughts. Um, You let the passage instead decide what you'll talk about and think about on a, a normal basis. But every now and then I think it's good to do a more systematic or analytical approach where you take a topic and you you try to piece together a whole picture about what that topic is. In this case, what praise is. And so we've been doing that in the book of Psalms. And we've been saying that in the book of Psalms, praise is so often both and, not an either or thing. We may want for Psalms, the Bible, for God to give us a this side of the coin, but not the other side of the coin. We may want to say that these things don't go together. I choose A, not B. But so often these things will just go together. Now let's do this. We'll start with one psalm. Turn to Psalm 150. And we'll see from Psalm 150 some of these both and principles. Not just Psalm 150, but other psalms as well. But we'll start in Psalm 150, which has a lot of what we'll say this morning about the forms of praise. Those wood slats that shape up what we do when we're laying down the plans to praise on a Sunday morning. The last psalm, Psalm 150, it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So six different both-and principles about the form of God's praise came to mind for me this week. The first is that it should be pastoral and participatory. Pastoral and participatory. That means it should be led by some. There are some who are up front, like I'm doing now, and there's a leadership going on. Decisions were made earlier before we got together. It's planned. But the leadership of God's worship is not the same thing as worship, which is to say it's not performance. It's not a show to be watched. The leadership of God's praise is not what the Old Testament priest was like, that he was the one who did the interceding. He was the one that made the sacrifice. He was the priest, not others. He was the one who entered God's presence, not others. But in the new covenant, we're all priests. We're priests to God. We've been saved to declare what he has done and who he is. So whatever happens with pastoral leading on a Sunday, Sunday morning, whether that's you know, during prayer time or even in announcements or Drew's leading of songs or someone preaching God's word, none of that should foster 
passivity, but instead should encourage participation. The participation will look different in different parts of the service. So during a sermon, there should be participation happening even though it's in a passive form. You're participating in your thinking. This should be an active receiving. You're hearing truth. You're digesting it, pondering it. You're looking in your Bible. It's an active thing even though there's one guy speaking and this isn't sort of a free-for-all. When someone leads us in prayer, When someone leads us in prayer, we all should be praying. It's just that. They're leading us in prayer. So a a kind of quiet dialogue might go on in your mind as you hear someone praying. You're saying, yes, Lord, please do that, yes. You hear some Christians do that out loud. Perhaps that's a bit of a habit. Perhaps it's a bit sanctimonious. Perhaps it looks very spiritual to tisk your lips a lot and go, yes, yes. (laughs) Emphasize the yes all the more. Looks very, sounds very spiritual. So yeah, some of us may be in a bad, thoughtless habit of doing that. But at its root, I mean, that should be and could be and hopefully is at times a really good thing to to show that this is a, a prayer happening, not just between God and one person, the person who's leading, but all those who are involved in it as well. They're praying as well. Singing is a more active form of participation. We sing. We all sing together. But this shouldn't be chaotic. It should be congregational. 1 Corinthians 14 seems to talk about a kind of chaotic get-together, kind of chaotic worship service. When Paul says in verse 26... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And I don't think he's commending them for this. Some people interpret it that way. I think he's describing what they've been doing. He's not prescribing what every other church should do. He's saying, look, everyone's showing up with something. This guy's got a psalm. This guy's got a song he wants to sing. This guy has a prophecy he wants to deliver. This guy wants to preach. This guy wants to share some Bible. And he tells us in the next verse what should guide all this. Let all things be done for the building up. Let all things be done for others. If we all came together to all give our own thing, it may be more about each of us individually, the person giving, than the rest of the body getting. So it's not a free-for-all. But as it's led, as leaders think about certain hymns and and perhaps a testimony or a sermon or prayers that will be said for the building up of the body, those leaders should be inviting engagement. Again, it's not for entertainment. Every bit of what goes on up here is for you. It is service to you. It is not entertainment for you. It's inviting you and calling you to engagement because God has a plan for his praise penetrating his people. God has a plan that his praise will will invite others to come along. It will evoke. It will spread. It It will engage. It will involve. You see Psalms 
calling all to praise God. All of the place you see this, all of you praise him. It calls on all of God's people to praise him. It calls at times on all of creation to praise him. Here's some examples. Psalm 5, 11, let all who take refuge in you, all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those that love your name may exalt in you. All of God's people. In Psalm 106, it says, Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. In Psalm 67, the funnel gets even bigger and it spreads to the whole world when it says three different times, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Then again, two verses later, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. And then again, two verses later, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. If you're still in Psalm 150, look over to Psalm 148 in your Bible. Look at the pervasiveness of God's praise, the invitation to God's praise. Verse 11, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. He's raised up praise for all his saints. We could put it this way. The Psalms insist that we are all the choir on Sunday morning, even if there is a formal choir assisting us in the leadership of God's praises. We're all the choir. Even if you stink, you're in the choir. You didn't make it in high school. You didn't get in the club. You're in the choir. All God's people are to be singing to the best of their ability. So this is one reason why we rarely do what some churches call special music. I grew up in that kind of tradition where the church couldn't do anything without a solo. Church picnic, who's doing the solo? You know? Fifth grade Sunday school class, well, which fifth grader is going to do the solo? Every single week we had to do a solo. Someone did a solo. A lot of special music. Most of it wasn't too special. (laughs) Special in the wrong way. So, at times at DSC, someone will sing while the rest of us listen. It's rare, but at times we do it. And when we do it, we usually say, as this happens, would you bow your head where you are and ponder this? Hear these words. Why are we doing it that way? Because this is an American idol. That, that isn't a performance. We don't clap afterwards because that was good. And then not clap sometimes when it's, <laughs> okay. No, if we're clapping at all at the end of any song, we're clapping in praise to God. Psalm 150 says it's in the sanctuary and in his mighty heavens. And with everything that has breath, there should be praise. So it's about him. He's the spectacle of Sunday morning. Nothing else. No one else. Whatever else is going on under lights, there's one hopefully who's in the spotlight. And it's God. And to that end, yes, there needs leadership, but there also needs participation. Each one must do his part or her her part. 
in the choir, in the singing of God's praises. Remember that analogy in the New Testament, that the church is a body. Each one of us as Christians are a part of the body. We, we're like a hand or an ear. Well, in, in that metaphor, each part, yes, has its own specialty, but it also sings. Every Christian's supposed to sing, not just those who are gifted at it. So these parts, yes, they're distinct. They're, they have an identity apart from the whole, but they're one inseparable body, and each part is doing its thing for the whole of the body. It must be pastoral, and it must be participatory. Secondly, it should be formed and free. God's praise should be formed and free. We talked about this in week one of this mini-series, that God's praise must be Bible-formed. That's what I mean by formed here. On the one hand, God's word tells us what should go into his worship. We saw that. Preaching. The reading of his word. The singing of his songs to each other and to him. Praying to him. The Lord's Supper and baptism, as often as we do those. It's Bible formed. On the one hand, the Bible tells us what we're supposed to do. That's the form part, but, but we've already talked about that, so I want to emphasize this. There's also something else to recognize. On the other hand, there's so many specifics that aren't spelled out for us in the New Testament, and we need to own that. There are all kinds of questions that you might have or that we might have as we plan a service, we think about God's worship as a church that aren't answered for us in Scripture. How often do we do the Lord's Supper in baptism? The order of worship on a Sunday morning. Where does confession of sin go? How many songs do you do after the sermon? Does the sermon earlier in the service, like at some churches, or later in the service, like most churches? How long should the sermon be? How many songs should we do? What kind of music? How many instruments are we talking? PowerPoint or hymnals? Chairs or pews? Windows or no windows? The Bible doesn't say. Certain things are a given, but exactly what they look like and how long they are and what order they're in, that can all vary. And it varies church to church. But it also varies week to week in one church. At least it does here. At least it can. I've said before, it's kind of like a combination lock. There are only so many digits. There are only so many slots, right? And the numbers can change. The order can change. You can reset the combination from week to week. But you can't, like, totally reinvent the combination lock. You can't say, "Mm, I don't like numbers. I'm using a key. You can't say... 1 through 10, I don't like those numbers. I want to use 11. It's not on there. You can't make up new numbers. You can't get rid of the numbers. It's a combination lock. But the order can change, and sometimes it does change. Now, one important application about this principle, that God's word forms our worship, but it also frees parts of our worship, is this. Preferences should be just that, preferences. God has given us what is required. The rest is to be worked out in wisdom 
and in pastoral leadership and for the good of the church, preferences must always be kept as just that, preferences. So getting worked up about something in the church, something in the church's worship that you don't have a Bible verse for is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. It's possible that you miss worship while you get hung up on on preferences. God requires participation of his people in the singing, whether what has happened so far has met their preferences or not. We all need to hear this. I know you think someone else needs to hear, but we all need to hear this from time to time. That's the second thing. It should be formed and free. The third thing is that God's worship should be oriented to the past and the present. Connected to the past, and I mean history, not just Bible, but clearly aware that we'd live not in the past, but in the present. And in the present, we have our own culture. We have our own tendencies for better or worse. Meaning our culture today, 21st century suburbanite-ish American culture. We have our own advantages to the worship of God, different from other cultures at other times, and we also have our own unique dangers compared with other cultures at other times. We look back to the past. Let's start with that one. We look back to the past because the New Testament uses language about what's been handed down like it's a relay race. There's some things we're to keep. There's some things we're to pass on. The church has and always been, has always been part of something that's been handed down. Luke begins his gospel account with this. He wrote down what the eyewitnesses had handed down. Now that's talking about the stories of Jesus, but those were handed down. It's what the church does. Paul wrote to Timothy to tell him that Here are ways in which one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's where he tells him, preach the word. That's where he tells him, read scripture. Give attention to it in the public reading. And then he reminds Timothy that the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. Here's how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God because the church holds the truth. It is the receptacle of God's truth that needs to get passed down. Jude 1, verse 3, says we should contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would interpret those verses differently than us as a Protestant church. They would see that as fully authoritative in all matters of faith and practice, not just doctrine. And we don't think that. We think Scripture is the final test. We think Scripture is, in a sense, the only true test of what we do and what God wants of us. But we're also, as C.S. Lewis said, we don't want to be chronological snobs. We don't want to have historical phobia. We want to be connected with the past. One of the ways that we're connected with the past is by singing older hymns. Older hymns. We put up with 
Old English, in old hymns, not because we have this thing for Old English, not because it's religious language, and when you put ETH on the end of any word, a halo falls on your head and an angel gets its wings. No. We put up with Old English in good old hymns because they uniquely, powerfully, richly show us something about God and his ways. Bob Coughlin, a modern worship leader and author, he wrote, As grateful as I am to God for the outpouring of modern worship songs, I think the riches of hymnody far outweigh what we've produced in the last 30 years. They cover a range of topics, they're more dense, more theologically precise, and they're often brilliantly crafted. And that's not a surprise. The hymns we sing today, Coughlin says, have been tested for centuries, causing the best ones to rise to the top. That's why we sing old songs. That's why at times we use historic confessions. At times we'll use the Apostles' Creed or we'll use the Nicene Creed, not because it's on par with Scripture, not just because it's authoritative because it's old. No, but... The church has proven in history throughout centuries after that this was a right and clear and succinct reflection of Scripture. It describes Scripture well. Like, listen to the way the Nicene Creed talks about Jesus. He's the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made in heaven and on earth. For us and for our salvation, he came down, was incarnate, and made man. He suffered and died. On the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven, and he shall come with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. By all means, have your kids memorize scripture. But it wouldn't hurt to have them memorize something like this as well. It helps them get parts of scripture even if they don't get the language early on later on they might get it and go oh that bible verse that goes in there i get it that's where that goes that's what that means use of old prayers at times we use at times bits of the book of common prayer it's an anglican book there are some things in it we don't agree with but it's in the protestant tradition and there's some rich things in there that are useful the Valley of Vision little paperback book that we have out there at the Resource Center most of the time, and many of you have it in your homes, collection of Puritan prayers from the 1600s. They were thoughtful prayers. They're good guides for us, in part, and in no small part, because they're faithful to Scripture. They wouldn't be helpful if they weren't faithful to Scripture. At times, we also benefit from old historic documents which just talk about corporate worship. You don't maybe directly benefit from things like that, but um, at times Drew and I are reading things like that, going through the, uh, the Westminster Confessions uh, Directory for Public Worship, which gets more specific than what we want to use. Right? It makes new rules up that we would say, eh, we think there's more flexibility than that. But, but they thought through it better than, than, than I have, uh, than many have today, and so we, we benefit from things like that. The point is simply this. On a Sunday morning, we are not reinventing the wheel every week. We're not the first ones to do this. And we should 
act like we're not the first ones to do it. We're part of a heritage. We tap into the past, but we're also aware that we're not living in the past. Some traditions, it seems, feel like they believe it still is the 17th century. Not all old is good. Not all new is bad. We live in the present. We're aware of today's hurts, today's heartaches. At one time, a mighty fortress is our God was a contemporary song, right? So was the King James Version, a contemporary translation. The Psalms were written, so many of them, from an experience that happened in 1 Samuel or something like that. Remember? David's on the run, so he writes this song, this poem, this prayer. And we can go and we can look at the context, the story from which that psalm springs. In a similar way, we all come on a Sunday morning with a story, with a context, with hurts and worries and heartaches and burdens we're trying to give to the Lord. Each one of us is our own story in a sense, and we acknowledge that when we come. Each tear that's shed at a certain point in the song no doubt springs from a story, a context, a burden, a worry. So we sing about our hurts and our heartaches to the Lord. We know that we live in the present. And we know that God is at work in the present. He is still working. He didn't just work in Acts 2 and then the Reformation, a little bit with the Puritans, but then hope Jesus comes back. He's still at work doing great and mighty things. And that's why it's right to sing a new song. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. He's done new marvelous things. And that's why there's cause for writing new songs expressing his greatness, which spring from a new context, a new story, a new issue, a new way of seeing it that's not new on the whole of God's word, but it's new in our experience of seeing it and knowing it and applying it. Psalm 40 says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So I'm thankful for a church that cares about this. We write new songs. They work at it here. We're at a church, thankfully, that also looks for new songs. And there are great new songs out there. We look for the best ones, and we use those where they're singable and where they're, they're true and rich. We also take old texts and put them to new music, past and present. Fourth, God's praise should be skillful and simple. Skillful and simple. The Psalms talk about music that's done skillfully. You know, our hallmark verse through this little mini-series could be, The Lord is great and greatly to be praised, Psalm 145.3. The Lord is great, and he's greatly to be praised. He's to be praised with great skill. Yeah, at times, great volume. Yes, great breadth as more and more come in. Yes, great depth as we think harder, longer, better, but also with great skill. David was described as a man, 1 Samuel 16, who was skillful in playing. So, in Psalm 33... It says, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the string. Psalm 66, sing to the Lord the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise. 
Literally in the Hebrew, it's make his praise glorious. So that's why there are a few musicians up here, and it's not like a family hoedown, which everyone has their own kazoo. Thankfully, right? There's skill going on there. We need skill because we want to be led in an expression of God's greatness. He's great and greatly to be praised. But there's a way in which the focus becomes greatness and not great praise. Where you forget that it's make his praise glorious, not make your service glorious. So one of the things we talk about on the staff is uh, an aim for something on Sunday morning that's between showy and shoddy. Those are two extremes that we want to avoid. Those are two forms around the wet concrete that we want to hold in place. We talk about a phrase, I think we got it from Piper, but we've been saying it for so long, I'm not sure where we got it. But undistracting excellence being one of the goals of a Sunday morning in our leadership of certain things. We want undistracting excellence. The excellence serves content... Therefore, we don't want distraction that's either too showy or shoddy. And and I'm sure you think that we're either too too showy or too shoddy. But I can tell you, we're aiming for something in between. We're aiming for, oh, what's behind me with lights. It's like that so that it's not distractingly boring. And yet, there's a way to light up the stage or to do PowerPoint or or to dress, or to do architecture, where the distraction is now on what's showy. Undistracting excellence is what we're after. And it should be real, too, by the way, which means that when we do mess up, and we do indeed mess up, then we should remind ourselves that we don't trust in the horse of this thing We don't do that to impress. We're real people. We make mistakes. We we have brain farts. And so, you know, things get messed up. And when we do, we say, well, you know, this isn't the new heaven and the new earth yet, apparently. Apparently, we're still clay pots with the glory of the gospel in us, right? So this should even reflect something stylistically of what we do on a Sunday morning. We aim for something that's modern, but also modest. There's a certain style about the kind of music that we do here on a Sunday morning, but it's a buffered style. Drew should never hear after the last song someone come up and say, that was exactly like Radiohead or Coldplay or Barry Manilow. Hopefully they never say Barry Manilow, but (laughs) it shouldn't be exactly like that. We're doing something different. The music serves the content. The music is carrying the truth of what we're celebrating along. The music is not an end in itself. Outside of here, sure, it is. Outside of here, art is art. Outside of here, beauty is beauty. When we come together here, the focus is on God's word. It's on truth. And so this even relates to the visual aspects of praise that happen here on a Sunday morning. 
We want to be guarded about adding more visual aspects to the service, despite what other churches in town are doing. I know you can do more with lights than we do. I know you can do more with graphics than we do. I know that there are these backgrounds that can happen behind the words when we're singing, and they're so moving, because they actually are moving. You know, it's a creek bed, and who doesn't like creek beds? Aw, he is like a creek. You know, the Lord is a small river. We need God's word to speak to us, and we don't need God's word to be carried along because we're quick with distraction these days. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. But from the style of music to the content of what we're after and to the ways in which we simplify what we do so that the visual aspects of worship are pared down to meet within showy and shoddy, we have to remember that this is about others. We sing for others. We have music in service to others. The music is for singing. The music is not an end in itself, and therefore even the style of music should as much as possible unite, not divide. It should express something of diversity Diversity of age and diversity of styles and culture and all those kind of things. That's why sometimes we have a full band. That's why sometimes we have a stand-up bass. That's why sometimes it's just guitar or just piano or guitar and cello. Sometimes we rock out. Sometimes we've done bluegrass. We've done jazz concerts. We've done classical concerts. And most of the time it's somewhere in between so that no one's distracted by the tenor or the style of the music. That's the fourth thing, skillful and simple, and related is the fifth thing, that God's praise should be awe-filling and not amusing. It's about awe in God. It's not about amusement. I've said already this morning, it's not about entertainment. Now, this point is somewhat a summary of a lot of what I've said in previous weeks and what I'm saying today, but it needs to be stressed. It needs to be its own point because a scary percentage of American churches have bought into a model of worship that looks more like entertainment than, some would say, than worship. You can Google this phrase, worshiptainment is now a saying. As you Google it, you'll find articles against it. You'll find articles for it. Those who do it sometimes aren't so happy to call it that. But I think you know, if you've traveled around, if you've done church in other churches, maybe if you've been in three, four, five churches in the last 10 years, or if you've been recently church shopping, you've seen that there's a difference in the way churches do music today compared to how they did things even 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And I'm not talking about traditional versus contemporary. I'm talking about whether it is God-word-focused, God-centered, God-saturated, Bible-filled, Bible-formed, or whether it's a a free-for-all. Where the series, preaching series, need a hook. It's not just we're going to do Exodus or Ephesians. It's, well, this was popular a few years ago, But a few years ago, a lot of churches were doing Desperate Housewives. 
And the logo on the PowerPoint looked just like the Desperate Housewives on TV, but instead it was about how mom is desperate. Life is hard for mom, and life is hard for mom. But we don't need desperate housewives using their graphic without permission to sell the Bible and its teaching. A newer one I just saw is, I guess some time ago, Charlie Sheen talked about winning. I don't even know the quote, but he, winning became a, a catchphrase, right? So one church is doing a series on winning. Because um, if Charlie Sheen thinks he's about winning, we Christians really know what winning is. There are churches that do things in a service, sometimes taking up 15, 20 minutes in the service, that are clearly, and I think they'd have to admit, that it's simply for the humor of it. It's simply for the levity of it. It's simply for, I don't know, getting people in, in a sense. Those things, I think, should be guarded. I think they should be excluded Worshiptainment at its worst is not worship. And worshiptainment at its worst will not have lasting fruit despite, despite the numbers on any one Sunday. It doesn't have staying power because it rides a roller coaster of the success of last week and the cleverness of next week. And eventually you run out of ideas. Eventually the lightness of it all will create a vacuum, even if you don't run out of ideas, a vacuum that longs to be filled with transcendence. And that's why you find all kinds of 20-somethings who are not interested in those kind of churches anymore. They're looking for something that's real. They're looking for something that unplugs. They're looking for something that feels a little older and a little more secure. I think that's right. I think it's biblical. I think our goal in corporate worship should be the awe of God, not the awe of people, not the awe of a show. Acts 2.42 says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And the next verse says, and awe came upon every soul. And yes, it goes on to say, and many wonders and signs were being done. So the awe, yes, is partly related to the miraculous that was going on around them. But notice it's miraculous. However big it is, however impressive it is, it's God doing it, not the apostles conniving. But notice also the awe is a hinge, and it hinges back to simple things like getting together and teaching and shaking hands and hugging and and praying together and eating the Lord's Supper these things can, by God's grace and by his spirit moving, produce awe on him. Lastly, let's talk about shouts versus, sorry, shouts and silence. God's praise should have shouts and silence, which means that there should be a diversity of emotions in our corporate worship that reflect the diversity of emotions and the diversity of expression that you see in the Psalms. Remember, there are some Psalms of lament. Those Psalms of lament are expressed to God in what looks like quietness, tears. One Psalm just ends without 
moving higher toward him. It just ends on a sad note. Life is hard. We're not home yet. So sometimes in our corporate worship, we should be silent because it's hard. Carl Truman has a great article. Uh, We'll put it on the church blog this week on what can miserable Christians sing? In some churches, you wonder whether anyone had a bad week. I think we could do better at this. We could do better at having at times more lament, more honesty, and not stopping there, moving towards joy, preaching truth to ourselves. But at times it's okay to be quiet, to have silence, to be still, because we lament. Sometimes quiet in the Bible is because God is mighty and he is awe-filling and you put your hand over your mouth and say you won't speak. That's what Job did when he was presented with God's glory and grandeur. At times, though, some things are expressed loudly to the Lord because he's majestic. It's supposed to roar. We're supposed to shout because he's great and greatly to be praised. And some of his praise should be loud because it's a celebration. It's a grace-filled expression of joy and freedom because he set his mercy on us. He's He's loved us in Christ. We know more about God's grace and mercy than the psalmist did. We know how the rest of the story goes. We know that the story doesn't stop with the psalms and God's sort of vague mercy that he just forgives. We know from the New Testament that Jesus came and lived righteously on our behalf. He died completely on our behalf. He was raised victoriously on our behalf. And we can have his righteousness and the payment for our sin can be made. The freedom that that brings can be ours if we repent of sin, give up on a pursuit of justifying self, and we flee to him, we trust him, we have faith in him. That kind of freedom leads to loud shouts, to loud songs, It leads to us singing aloud. It's all over the psalms that our singing should be rather loud and it should break forth like the ocean crashes. But keep in mind the psalms also talk about loud playing, not just loud singing. Even before the days of plugging in and turning up, there was such a thing as loud playing. I want to talk about this for just a little bit before we wrap things up because this is probably the thing that is most often brought to our attention as a leadership of concern in our corporate worship together. That is, the relationship between the volume of people singing, and you know what I'm going to say, and the volume of the speakers, the volume of the PA system uh, with those who are leading us in that worship. How do we think through that? Because we get that. We're not mad at it. We're glad to receive it. We digest it when we get that feedback. Sometimes we get feedback that it's too loud. Sometimes we get feedback that the music is too quiet, believe it or not. But we do. (laughs) Thank you, Brother David. At least 20 different instruments are mentioned in the Psalms. Did you know that? 
And some of them are quiet, like stringed instruments, but some of them are loud, like crashing cymbals. Psalm 150 had that, right? Verse 5, praise him with sounding or loud cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. So sometimes the volume is loud, not just because we turn it up, but because it should be because God enjoys something of his greatness expressed in great volume. Now, every one of us has a preference on the whole thing of loudness, loud music, or even loud singing. We all think that it's not a preference. We all think it's obvious, and everyone should just follow our rule. But it is a preference. You know that. If you go to someone's house, they're playing music, it's either too loud or too quiet. You just can't do anything about it. It's their house. It's their music. You go into someone's office, they can be that kind of person who thinks with loud music. That's me. If I ever get a new office here at Desert Springs, it's going to be soundproof. <laughs> Crank it. I think well with loud music, but I, but I know other people don't. Ron Giese comes in and he patiently sits for a while and says, can you turn that down just a little bit, please? So, oh, I forgot. I turned it off. Some don't think well with loud music. We all have preferences. And so we need to acknowledge those are preferences. We also need to acknowledge that some here on Sunday morning think that louder music helps more people sing. Usually a younger crowd thinks the louder the music, the more we want to sing. Otherwise it feels dead as tombs in here and it's awkward to sing loudly in someone's ear if there isn't also this ambient noise, right? Young people, people younger than me, right? The louder, the more you tend to sing. Well, there's another group in the church, isn't there? There are older folks as well who, who, who think that when the music is too loud and we hear people less around us, then, then people get quiet and it's more of a show. And you know what? I'm really sympathetic to both. I could go both ways on this. I could crank it and I could say, let's just get rid of it and have hymnals. <laughs> I could. We won't, don't worry. But... I'm sympathetic to both, but regardless of whether you think we got the balance right here, know that we hear requests for louder and quieter. Know that we, at times, compare our decibel levels with other churches of similar size and similar music styles, and we're usually on the quieter side, by the way. Uh, but we, we check that as a, you know, it's a scientific thing. Let's just check the DBs and see where we're at. Uh, but know this, more importantly than anyone, anything I've said so far on this, know that our aim is your singing. That's our aim. Our aim is your singing. The volume and the instrumentation in what goes on in planning a Sunday morning, in evaluating a Sunday morning, and we evaluate them every single week, Tuesday morning in my office. Uh, when we evaluate what, we're, what the litmus test is, is participation, involvement. We want you to sing more. So one application might be, if you think the music is too loud, hey, sing louder. Sing louder. Honestly, if we sing louder, then the music won't be, um, in comparison, as loud. And, and if you think, no, music should be louder, then I would sing, shame on you. Sing louder. Sing louder. Ways we can grow in singing more loudly as a church by continuing to have good songs, familiar songs, yes, but also new songs that are good, songs that are born out of DSC. I think at times are sung 
with some ownership. I like that. Another way we can improve is with ongoing good teaching. Certain songs are sung better because the truth in them has been heard and received and cherished by the church body. That's why at times we do a song in connection with a sermon series. It's taking opportunity to drive home a certain truth over a month or two months or three months of teaching in a certain book of the Bible. We try to encourage more volume and more participation in singing on a Sunday morning with the transitions that happen before or after a song. It tries to prepare your mind for what we're about to sing. Just the flow of the overall service. You might know at times that there's a thematic development to what we're doing. Uh, what we and me and Drew say is that uh, it should follow a logical progression, the songs we sing, the themes we talk about. And if we're ever going to break the progression, let's just put up a road sign and tell people we're doing that. So, you know, you get to heaven, singing about heaven, but then you go back to confession. That was kind of an unusual, un, somewhat unnatural order. That's all right. Just put up a road sign, tells people what we're doing. Now, let's think about this. And Drew does that and, um, and does it better all the time, in my opinion. The example of those leading us is also... I think a part of way, a part of way, part of the way in which we're trying to grow in more vocal participation. Watch those who are up here. They're not just leading notes and words, they're leading in worship. They are lead worshipers. Another thing we tuck away about this issue is patience. A cultural change in a church takes time. I'm in it for the long haul, and I have a dream about a church that sings loudly 20 years from now, really loudly, like is famous for loud congregational singing. And we're improving in that. We're thankful for that, but we have a ways to go. And by all of us owning it, that's another way in which we grow in this. We say, I'm in the choir. It's not about preferences. It's about his praise. It's not about them. It's not about, I wish he would do this. I wish he wouldn't look that way. I wish they wouldn't do X, Y, Z. It's not about us. It's not about those things. It's about God's worship, and he deserves it. He is great and greatly to be praised. He's the Lord, and there's none besides him. There's no God like our God who forgives iniquity, cancels out sin, and is so near to those who are his.